keep in mind how the questions that non-Christians have if they're in the audience. And, and Christians too. But so the text itself raises questions, which you should obviously address in, in any kind of expositional sermon. But then when you're preaching on any subject or a text, you can begin to ask what questions are likely in the back of the minds of listeners, both Christians and non-Christians, and then in formulating answers uh, based on good theology, based on the text itself, you'll often um, be doing apologetics. You'll be defending the Christian answer to those questions. So, so again, there are questions the text asks itself, which you must treat. There are also questions you think might arise in the minds of your hearers, which are also worth treating. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 236. I'm your host, Mike Neglia. The voice you just heard is that of our guest for this week's show. It's Dr. Neil Shenvey. Neil has worked as a research scientist at Yale University and Duke University. He's published a ton of peer-reviewed papers and is also keenly interested in apologetics, uh, the use of reason and logic and faith and evidence in bringing people into a confrontation with the real living Christ. So I really enjoyed talking to him about the overlapping roles of expository preaching and then also evangelistic appeals and answering the real or imagined questions of those that are listening to us preach. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope that you will too. Be sure to visit expositorscollective.com for access to the 235 other episodes of this show, and also to find out information about our upcoming training event in Boise, Idaho, October 14th and 15th. Uh, We would love to help you grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. So whether that's attending in person in Idaho, or if it's listening to this following conversation, uh, we're really rooting for you. Uh, We want to help you and your ministry grow and flourish. Here's my interview with Dr. Neil Shendi. All right. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. Uh, this week's guest is Dr. Neil Shenby. Uh, good morning and welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. Good morning, Mike. Thank you to have me. Okay. <laughs> so I'm just going to kind of jump straight into it. Actually, maybe an ambush question. I didn't, I didn't prepare you for this in advance, but um, have you ever taught the Bible in public? And when was the first time that you did that? I have. And let's see, I guess you want preaching or teaching the Bible. Those are different things, I guess. Hey, whatever is the most awkward story. <laughs> the most awkward. Well, uh, soon after we I kind became of collect a Christian them here on this show. Yeah. I, so I became a Christian in graduate school and pretty soon afterwards, I mean, that made me like less than a year, a year or two. Uh, I began having Bible studies in the People's Park at Berkeley. I became a Christian at UC Berkeley while I was a grad student. And I began leading Bible studies at this local park. There was a site where a lot of homeless people would hang out. And so I I kind of taught the Bible, but I was a brand new Christian. Yeah. And so I I mainly just participated in Bible studies with other guys who are more experienced, not older, but more experienced Christians. Um, That was sort of the first time I publicly taught the Bible. I guess that counts. Yeah. Did it go well? (laughs) 
Pretty well. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a very different audience, right? Sure. There wasn't a lot of like in-depth questions about exegesis, but it was basic, basic questions and some, you know, heckling from people who are not, not Christians and not open to Christianity, but yeah. it was good. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, so you, funny enough, you kind of began teaching with maybe even non-Christians in mind. And it seems that a lot of your ministry since then has been either, yeah, directly towards those who don't agree with you, or even, I guess, maybe equipping others to speak to those who who have not like accepted the Christian worldview and obviously accepted the Christ of Christianity uh, yet. Um, so, what has caused you to be interested in what we call apologetics or this worldview evangelism? Right. That actually began sort of when I was a grad student, I got involved with a group that was trying to bring Christians and atheists together to talk about the big questions of life as a Christian group, but they were aiming to invite atheist groups, atheist students to just have conversations about philosophy, science, faith, etc. And so that began my interest in apologetics. And then what really kicked it off was actually getting invited to um, to post on an atheist blog. So a friend of mine from high school who I kind of lost touch with emailed me one day and said, oh, you're still religious because I have a friend who can talk you out of all of that. Come on to his blog and debate him. This was back in like 2009, 2010, maybe. No, no, sorry, 2005 or six. Anyway, but uh, this guy's a Yale graduate, very smart, bright guy. And so we, we began having this sort of online blog debate. And that's how I got into the question of you know, defending the faith with reason and evidence, for, and for real, you know, really being thrown into the deep end of the pool. Now, fortunately, neither of us were very equipped to talk at a high level about <laughs> anything. Yeah, uh, I was just dipping my toe in the water of apologetics. But actually, what's interesting was that I began not with reading a lot of apologists, but with reading atheist authors. So he recommended uh, Richard Dawkins. No, he recommended Robert Price's The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man. And Robert Price is one of the, maybe the two or three credentialed Jesus mythers in the world today. There are maybe a few people with PhDs who actually argue that Jesus never even existed. And he was one of them. So I read that book and then I read Dawkins, The God Delusion and Sam Harris's End of Faith. And that's really actually began my... I think approach to apologetics, which is to read primary sources, not to read apologists primarily, but to primarily read atheists, secularists, maybe liberal Christians, because I want to hear firsthand how they think about these issues. That is, that's, yeah, that's sadly a little bit rare. Oftentimes we read, we read summaries and then takedowns of others' views. So yeah, that's a, even a, a gentle reproof and invitation from you to engage with those actual arguments. Well, so here, here's a question. So I'm, I'm not an apologist. I'm a, I'm a preacher. And, uh, and most people who are listening to this are just like regular Bible teachers to a youth group or college group or, or congregation. How, what kind of advice or encouragement could you give to us, you know, normal guys um, who are preaching the Bible to include more of an apologetic uh, bent or moments in our teaching and preaching? So first, just to find terms, apologetics just means the defense of the faith of Christianity using reason and evidence. And preaching, I would argue, is primarily the exposition of an application of the text, the Bible's text. And those two things are not at all mutually exclusive or even competing because oftentimes we see the Bible asking questions and then defending God's response. Like, so examples off the top of my head were Habakkuk, 
Habakkuk asks God, how long are you to delay your judgment on Israel? And that God declares that he's going to bring judgment in the form of the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk is all confused. He's like, wait a minute, Babylon, they're so evil. The rest of the book of Habakkuk is all about God vindicating his actions. So then, or look at the book of Job. Job's all about, actually, the real question of Job is, will man serve God for nothing? But of course, Job asks over and over again, why does God allow this to happen? Well, when's he going to give me an audience? When can I state my case? And at the end, God gives him an answer, not the one we'd expect, but he answers Job's questions. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter says about how scoffers are going to arise and say, where's the second coming he promised? And you know, God just, everything's going on and on. There's no judgment coming. And then Peter gives an answer that God's delaying judgment so that we have time to repent. So the point is, throughout the Bible, you have the Bible itself giving a defense of Christianity, of the Christian faith, of Christian doctrine. So it's God himself giving an apologetic to us. So when you hear the Bible through that lens or that framework, you begin to see that it's actually a natural part of preaching. You're asking the very questions that the Bible itself asks mm. and then giving the Bible's answers. So I don't think we should see this as this, you know, this alien subject we have to you know, tack on to the text. It can be a natural way to view the Bible's internal dialogue. Um, so that's one thing. So I, I think when the, the Bible itself asks questions, and gives the answers, we can point that out. Like, oh, have you ever wondered why God allows bad things to happen? Well, let's read the book of Job because that's one of the main themes. And then, but the other point I think that you can easily introduce uh, these apologetic themes into, into sermons is to keep in mind how the questions that non-Christians have if they're in the audience yeah. and, and Christians too. But so the text itself raises questions, which you should obviously address in, in any kind of expositional sermon. But then when you're preaching on any subject or text, you can begin to ask what questions are likely in the back of the minds of listeners, both Christians and non-Christians, and then in formulating answers uh, based on good theology, based on the text itself, you'll often be doing apologetics. You'll be defending the Christian answer to those questions. So, so there are questions the text asks itself, which you must treat. There are also questions you think might arise in the minds of your hearers, which are also worth treating. So both of those are very natural ways to bring apologetics, broadly construed as defending the faith with reason and evidence, into the sermon. Yeah, and and if, certainly Paul does this uh, a lot. And I remember reading uh, in a, a study Bible uh, in my early years of, of faith, it speaks about how Paul is answering the questions of an imagined locutor, an imagined interlocutor. And, and I remember coming across that phrase and I was maybe 21 years old. I was like, what's an interlocutor? <laughs> and, and, and looked it up and I felt so smart. But yeah, but Paul imagines that there's somebody pushing back against every one of his things that he says in Romans. And then he gives that answer. You know, some might say this, but here's, here's what I'm saying back. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's ways to, yeah, either to follow that train of thoughts, or I love what you're saying too, to imagine what the contemporary interlocutors are saying and then answer those with yeah, winsomeness and good theology and thoughtfulness. Um, so what you've, you've mentioned a few different times, and, and forgive me if I'm getting the, the phrasing wrong, but you defined apologetics as like, as using reason and evidence to answer. Can you, can you give me that definition again? <laughs> yeah. So just defending the faith with reason and evidence. Oh, I got it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got it. Okay. So what, what are the sort of like appeals to reason and evidence that you think are, are appropriate for, for a Sunday morning? 
I mean, if you look, I sometimes people are like, uh, you know, we don't need to study logic or philosophy or, or, or reason to, to, to be Christians or to read the Bible. I'm like, how do you read anything without using reason and logic? I, I just can't fathom that. I can't read, you know, the newspaper or, 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 or the train schedule with your, you know, without using reason. And so when you look at, look at Romans, how do you read the book of Romans without trying to understand Paul's argument? He's making a reasoned, logical, sequential, systematic argument in that book. And so when I say defending the faith with reason and evidence, I, I, I can't fathom how you would not do that if you're trying to understand the Bible or, or any book. So I think that's natural. Then evidence, I think that we can hear evidence and we can think that uh, very narrowly in terms of like scientific evidence, um, empirical evidence, the evidence of our senses. And I think it's not true at all. Evidence can be much more broadly understood to include historical evidence, philosophical evidence, experiential evidence. Those all count as any evidence of anything that makes a conclusion more likely. It's not proof, it's evidence, right? You don't prove hmm. things necessarily. You have evidence for them. So whenever I have some fact that makes some conclusion more likely, well, that's evidence. And so you know, when you understand apologetics that way, again, it's just everywhere. You're always adducing evidence to make some kind of case, even exegetical arguments. You're like, well, what does this word mean? Let's look at the context. Let's, let's put together some various pieces of evidence from the grammar, from the tense, from the surrounding argument, from the pit, from the book itself, from the author. And so you're, again, you're providing evidence. This is the proper way to read the text. So again, I just... I think when we, we tend to think about apologetics in a certain, I think, very narrow way to be, say, it's like, well, making arguments about, um, uh, you know, for, for the moral argument or the cosmological argument, or if they don't fit into these boxes, then it's not really apologetics. And I would say, no, 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 you're, you're thinking for far too narrowly. Think a little bit more broadly about how, how far-reaching statements about biblical truth are and how much you can bring in from, you know, of course, disciplines like science and philosophy, but things like sociology, things like uh, all these other fields that, 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 because the biblical truth is far reaching. It's speaking about well, human beings, about reality, about our uh, emotions, our experiences, about history. So all of those arenas are places where you can bring in arguments to support what the Bible is saying. Yeah, I in a conversation that I recently had with yeah, Dr. Amy or Ewing, she was just speaking about the importance of of connecting the the alleged the world of the Bible with the the real world mm -hmm. and and showing in as many different ways as possible bridging those connections and saying this is not this mythical book from a long time ago in a land far away. Um, although, I mean, <laughs> it was far away and it, you know and, and it was long ago, but yet these these truths, these principles they're lived out today in our own experiences and with everything else that we encounter today that there is, you know, this is the same world. Uh, funny, you, you mentioned different kinds of evidence. I, I noticed that you said experiential evidence. And then even to make matters worse, you talked about emotional evidence. Mm -hmm. I'm not used to thinking of experience nor emotions as, as evidence. Do you want to explain a little bit more how, how you, a smart man, <laughs> can mm -hmm. speak about uh, emotions as an evidence? I mean, look how much emotion there is in like the Psalms. Book of Psalms is full of emotion, anger, sadness, sorrow, guilt, uh, gratitude, praise. It's a very emotional book. Yeah. And the but again, the point here is that 
we don't want to, we want to, like you said, to, to call attention to the fact the Bible takes place in the real world and it involves real humans who have real human emotions. They're not robots. God didn't hand us merely, you know, God didn't hand us the Westminster Confession of Faith. Not, I'm not <laughs> knocking that. I'm just saying it's sure, not the yeah. list of propositions. Yeah. He handed us a book that's full of different genres, full of poetry, full of, uh, you know, very pointed, sharp imagery, uh, full of, full of uh, sort of uh, vituperation. Uh, uh, there's lots of stuff in the Bible that we don't, expect to find in a holy book, even some, you know, some frankly kind of crude language at times to, to, to wake us up. So what does it take emotion? Um, if you are brought up thinking that like, for example, the, the holy pious attitude to have is this blissful happiness this you know, you're above it all. You're, you're almost like, it's like a Buddhist attitude towards this new, I've reached this nirvana, this divine state of complacency. Well, you're going to read the Psalms and be like, no, actually, we see that the, the saints of the Old Testament had a, a whole range of emotions that were all divinely approved and inspired. They're, in, they're there in the Psalms. And so it calls into, it makes us check ourselves and say, wait a minute, do I have a proper understanding of the role of, say, anger or, or depression in the Christian life? It's there. It's real. And, and actually, the, the, that can be an apologetic because it says, the Bible explains why these emotions are not negative. You don't need to get rid of those emotions. There's a role for all of them to play. There's a role to, for sorrow to play. There's a role for joy to play. There's a role for laughter to play and mirth to play in the Christian life. So, and, and contrast that to other, say, other religions might teach a very ascetic approach to emotion. Well, just detach yourself from emotion. And that can be, wait a minute, that doesn't actually match the human experience. We're not meant to be robots or uh, you know, Bayesian logic, you know, engines. We're meant to have a full range of emotion or experience. Uh, speaking, it's sort of emotional, but it's also more than that. I one of the things I talk about in my, my book, which is coming out, uh, came out, um, which has already come out at the time of this <laughs> of this broadcast. One of the things I talk about is the fact that there is a moral realm. There is, a, there is right and wrong and good and evil that we experience immediately. What do I mean immediately? I mean that it's part of our mental furniture. That human beings universally, and actually I quote from Stephen Pinker's, Pinker's great book, the, the Blank Slate. He's an atheist, a Harvard psychologist. But he points out that across cultures, across history, human beings have certain universal features and attributes. And one of them is a recognition of right and wrong. And that's part of our just human nature. It's that we all share. Well, the experience of moral emotions like guilt, hmm. like feelings of obligation, feelings of remorse, not just happiness and sadness, but actually feeling there's something about what I ought to do and ought to, how I ought to live. And when I fail to live up to my expectation, my obligations, I feel shame or guilt. Hmm. That's an experience that goes beyond just mere emotion. I mean, you can, I can feel shame and yet not really be sad. I just know it's there. I just, something's wrong with my actions. That's what I would say more of an experience than an emotion. Guilt. I can be guilty and maybe feel guilty, but it's not really nameable as it's not like, it's not happiness, but it's not really sadness per se. It's just a, a it's weight on me. Well, that's an experience the Bible talks about. It's when we'd expect if Christianity is in fact true. 
Yeah. Hey, thank you for such a thoughtful explanation to my uh, shockedness <laughs> at uh, the linking of those of those things together. Is this is this um, similar to like uh, presuppositional apologetics, which is which is saying like you know you know that this is true In- internally, you know this. So the presuppositional apologetics, there's a range of approaches that usually presupposes something like either God's, the biblical God's existence or the authority of scripture itself. And that okay. you, you, you would argue from the, the, that basis that reality is only comprehensible if those conditions are true. I, that's not the approach I'm taking, but however, I would, I, I call myself a soft presuppositionalist because I do think our presuppositions are very important. So we, we can't, we all assume certain things about reality, even if yeah. it's simple as like, I, I assume that my experiences of reality are vertical. They're real. I'm not living in a box hooked up to electrodes. I'm not, I'm brain in the vat. I'm not living in the matrix. I assume that my, my cognitive functioning, my, my thinking is, is accurate. Like I can tell what's true from false. I can follow a train of argument logically. Well, I assume that I can't prove that. How would you prove it? You can't prove that you're not crazy. You could be crazy. So there are certain things that I assume about reality, and those will unavoidably affect how I interpret evidence. So there's no such thing as like self-interpreting evidence because right. we always bring these assumptions into the to the evidence, which will shape dramatically how we interpret it. So again, I wouldn't say I'm a presuppositionalist in the in the Vantilian sense, but I would say that I have a great appreciation for the way that our assumptions affect our interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks again. I'm I'm vaguely aware, and I'm, I realize that I these are the mere edges of your ways. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, so okay. So those are some of the the benefits or the advantages why why we could or should be include including these types of appeals. Uh, so yeah, Doctor Shenby, do you see any danger of incorporating apologetics or these types of things into a Sunday morning sermon? I mean. Yeah, there, there's some. I think one of the biggest ones is probably not a danger for preachers and expositors because of their very their vocation. So the biggest problem I think of apologetics um, today and maybe throughout history is decentering of theology and decentering of the gospel. So apologists can very easily uh, they can try to extract the apologetic enterprise from their theology. And from a biblical understanding of things like sin and repentance and sanctification. And I think that's very dangerous because number one, apologetics is not a purely intellectual exercise. It can turn into that, but it's not. And second, you should never extract anything from your theology. Theology is meant to be incorporated into the way you think about reality, including apologetics. And so, but, but fortunately for a pastor, for a preacher, they are doing it in the context of a sermon, an expositional sermon. Hopefully, they will not be tempted to extract <laughs> that, you know, their theology from their sermon. They, they'd better not do that. So, fortunately, that'll always be in the context within a sermon of theology. And then I think the second danger is accommodationism. So, the tendency to try to accommodate your message to make it appealing to the hearers. And of course, that can happen in preaching too. You want to say things that'll be liked. You don't want to say hard things. And so you're tempted to then sort of soften the edges of biblical doctrine, to fudge some answers, to make your listener more amenable to your message. And I think certainly apologetics can do that. And again, hopefully, hopefully the same safeguards 
that are in place against doing that for preachers will also guard them against doing that apologetically. You know, if the Bible says something, you, you really can't change what it says. I mean, you can obviously you can rethink your interpretation by getting this right. Absolutely. We always do that. We always want to reform our beliefs to what's true and what scripture says, but don't go beyond that. <laughs> say, well, I'm not sh- it is true, but I, I don't want to mention that. Or I, I want to say, well, you we can kind of give some leeway there. If the Bible says it, just, just affirm it and uh, and stop there. So I think those are the two dangers. And and fortunately, I think within the pulpit, those are those are lessened. But I, I think I, what I what I would but I would but my biggest concern in the pulpit would be that apologetics should never displace the Bible. <laughs> D- don't give a sermon that's mainly a lecture on apologetics. The, the sermon's mainly about expositing the word of God and applying it to their to the hearers for the edification of Christians. So you always can, of course, incorporate apologetics, but it should always primarily be about what the text is saying. Well, yeah, wholehearted. Yeah, amen. Um, and as I was mentioning to you before we hit record, yeah, we've had a, a few kind of apologetically oriented uh, guests and you're you're part of a of a new and growing tradition of, of featuring mm-hmm. apologetics on the show. And yeah, I, what everyone is saying is that, yeah, this is this is worthy of inclusion, but yet there's a time and a place for mm-hmm. the apologetics lecture, and it probably isn't on on Sunday morning. I, I mean, like, do you have any like hard and fast suggestions about how many minutes or 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 what ways to make sure that it doesn't predominate? No, I, I just make it natural. Like when it comes up, it comes yeah. up. Like if you're yeah. preaching on some passage, I mean, you could preach on some passage that's not going to be related to apologetics. Like if you're going to preach about. I don't know, the doctrine of justification. I mean, there's always ways to incorporate it. And there's always ways to be, um, I don't like seeker sensitive language, but seeker aware, my old church used to say, sure. aware yeah. that people that are not Christians are listening. Yeah, And yeah. so uh, you don't therefore change what you're preaching. You explain it more clearly. Yeah. You know, I think uh, my old church uh, pastor by Josh Moody, uh, who's now at Wheaton Bible Church, but he um, he said they don't want to lo- use what he called the language of Zion. So using words like justification without defining it. Oh, you know, we're justified by faith alone. Okay, I don't. What did that even mean? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a Christian. I don't know what that means. So you don't want to use these religious words, not because they're not specific and accurate, but because they're literally not words we use in normal English language. So it helps to define your word, things like that, just to be, to be aware of how uh, or or misunderstandings that a non-Christian might have if you say something that. What Christians would understand immediately. They interpret it rightly. Of course. Um, again, we're not trying to soften or or downplay what the Bible says. We're trying to make it clearer to the hearers. So they don't mis- misunderstand it. And I think that and I think one thing also that might help pastors, I, I do think there's a room and even a call for apologetics, certainly broadly within the sermon, but it, it might take the pressure off of them if they do make space within during the week. In another context to have, like our other, the guests, their guests have said, dedicated apologetics talks. So you don't feel the pressure of like, well, if I don't get it on Sunday, there's no other yeah. time at all to talk about these issues. Well, maybe just have a class. For, especially my big thing is uh, for students, man, it, you know, starting my kids, obviously, for age three and up, we're getting apologetics. But certainly by the time your kids hit middle school, I'd even say late elementary school, they need to be having discussions about these this, these topics. I, I had a friend who's an apologist and he said he taught fifth grade and he used to have a box in his office where students could slip papers with questions on the paper that he would answer anonymously during class. 
So any question they had about anything, and he was an apologist. So, so he'd do that fifth grade, he had all these questions, great questions, he'd answer them. He said, by sixth grade, he did the same thing. By sixth grade, they would stop asking because they were just either embarrassed or ashamed or just didn't want to talk about it. So it's like, you, you can't, don't, don't expect that they're going to be open forever. They're going to be, you know, okay with feeling ignorant and feeling like they have basic questions that aren't, and they're going to clam up. So the earlier, the better. And so I think my, my, if I were a pastor, I'm not, but my policy would be that, that once a year, every single student of any age will get an apologetics lecture once per year, just, you know, one hour, but just by the time they're graduating high school, they've heard, you know, 12 or 13 or 14 or 15 of these hour long discussions of things like who is Jesus? How do we know the Bible's accurate? Um, things like that. Uh, that I think that's just going to be part of our Christian discipleship. I do, I would do much more than that, but at a minimum. Yeah. Yeah. And Kevin DeYoung said it, and I've, I'm, it's probably not unique to him, but he says, if we're not catechizing our kids, mm. someone else is. And so, yeah, that we live in a, a, a catechiz- catechizing formative world. And yeah, again, when I hear you say, oh yeah, one hour per year, I think, oh yeah, that's great. And then think, what a, what a drop in the ocean compared right. to all the other catechizing that's taking place through YouTube videos, Disney plus, I, I could go on and on and on, but, uh, um, Hey, what, what's a good, like apologetics book for kids since we're on this subject. And then of course, I'm going to ask about adults next. And that's when you can talk about your book, of course, don't worry, but what's a, what's a good one for, for kids. Well, you know, I honestly don't know because I have always just taught my kids what I know, but just turned down to their level. But I never, I never like, oh, I have to use something totally different or more mm. basic. I remember I taught, I taught Awanas for many years. And I, when I was teaching the Cubbies class, that would have been like three and four year olds. I remember doing a lesson on, I didn't call it this, but the Kalam cosmological argument is yeah. saying everything that be, everything has a cause, everything that begins has a cause, and the universe begins, the universe has a cause. And I just did it with dominoes. I showed them dominoes falling over and I said, there's got to be a first domino. And again, I remember people looking at me like, that's ridiculous. They don't understand that. I was like, I, well, maybe they don't, maybe they do. But, you know, I'm going to try to teach some basic stuff like who made the universe God did and how do you know that? Well, because it had a beginning and so there had a beginner. I don't think that that is beyond kids' grasp. I mean, my kids know tons of stuff. I and mean, the average, you know, fourth grader is building like castles in Minecraft with redstone and these logical argument switches and, and things that I can understand. But, and you're telling me they can't understand basic issues like, is the Bible reliable? How do we right. know? They can understand that. So treat them with some respect. So I actually, I'm teaching, um, for example, in, in a few days, I'm teaching a, a class of 101 homeschooling kids ages 11 and up. And I am simply taking my material from my book for adults and just, just making it a little, not, I mean, I'm not even altering it. I'm just talking more carefully at a at not even a lower level, the same data is there. I'm just trying to give them more illustrations and slow it down a little bit. But I mean, come on, these are high school students. Think about it. high school students. Real. I read Moby Dick as a junior in high school. I, I, I read Don Quixote as a senior. I, I people are capable of learning, and I think it's time for us to make them put their big boy pants on and just, you know, this is not supposed to be a cakewalk. It's not supposed to be like. Uh, you know, a baby. This is a, this is life. This is real. It's worth investing in. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I got a four-year-old and he's got asked some big, deep questions sometimes. For example, he said to my wife, so God lives in our heart, right? Well, who lives in God's heart? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if that's as deep as, uh, as you can get, but uh, it's a good well, no, they, they deep do question. Ask, they ask those questions and, and the, you think, well, they're not learning it enough or hard enough, but the very fact that you're, they're asking questions and you're answering them is a good precedent to set. And I do think my daughter, my my younger daughter, from a very young age, was grasping these like basic theological concepts and to the point where like we were talking in the car. I remember and she was like maybe three. And I said something about like, oh, that's, you know, something like you did a really good job on that. Or no, you know, something like something, I think I must have said something like he's he's really good at something. Mm-hmm. And she piped up and goes, Daddy. Human beings aren't good. No one is good because she's been learning about the doctrine of original sin. And so, yeah. and then, you know, it wasn't like a mean spirited thing. She's just like, no, he's like, all human beings are kind of messed up that she knew that from her very youngest age. And so that's just the framework, they, the lenses they have to view the world as they're growing up are ones that we've given them with sort of biblical grounding. So I think it's very important and that's not really apologetics per se, but it's more even more important. It's a biblical worldview. Yeah, certainly. And to realize, you know, for those of us who are parents or carers or fostering or whatever, we do have these opportunities. And and maybe some of apologetics is maybe undoing errors um, or answering objections. But then also to say we also, for those of us, again, who are parents, young kids, we get the chance to um, get people, get young humans going in that right direction. Mm-hmm. Helpful, thoughtfully, uh, in a non, well, the word indoctrinate sounds very, it's loaded, but also we want to get doctrine into people. Yeah, yeah um, I don't mind using that word. I mean, we're all, we're all doing it. I mean, who, yeah. show me the show me the parent who's not indoctrinating some ideas into their kids. Of course you all are. Even if you're, even if you're saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to indoctrinate them into anything. They're going to be a free thinker. What are you doing? You're teaching them that free thinking and being yeah. your own person, having your own ideas. That's super important. That's indoctrination. That's, that's seeping through your very refusal to indoctrinate. Yeah. So yeah, it's going to happen. You, so the only question is whether you indoctrinate them into true and good thing and beautiful things or false and erroneous things. Yeah. Yeah. We did a, a, a midweek series through the Apostles Creed uh, many years ago, and I I was this close. I got talked out of it by some well, well-intentioned and very wise uh, elders, but I wanted to call it like indoctrination class. <laughs> People come to the Wednesday night indoctrination class and uh, we changed it to credo class, which sounds sounds good. Means the exact same thing, right. but uh, doesn't have the uh, the edginess to it. We're in Ireland, so uh, evangelical mm-hmm. Christianity is a minority religion, so I probably shouldn't be making too many like cult <laughs> jokes, yeah. uh, since many people think we're a cult anyway. All right, hey. So speaking of Christianity, you argue in the book that like that the gospel message itself is evidence for Christianity. What? How? Why? And and then secondly, like, what's the application for ordinary pastors and preachers like me? Yeah, this is, I think, you know, the book is largely, you know, as a lot of I, arguments that have been you know, used before, I put a special twist in some of them and present them, I hope, clearly. But a few of the things I think are truly new, and I think this is one of them. So I argue that the gospel itself, and it's just a message of Jesus' life, atoning death and resurrection, that's evidence of the Christianity is true. And that's... I think Christians should be shocked most of all. They're like, wait a minute. I always thought that we did apologetics before we shared the gospel. It's sort of like, you know, plowing up the ground and so on. Hmm. And then 
when people are ready to hear the gospel, then we share it. But I'm saying, no, the gospel is the best apologetic argument for Christianity. And so the, the basically the structure of the argument looks like this. Um, I use an analogy. Imagine that I'm playing pickup basketball. I collapse on the court. Everyone rushes over to see what's wrong with me. And one guy says, oh, you just, you just fell down. You're fine. You know, give him some air. Let him walk it off. Be okay. Another guy says, no, I think he, he sprained his ankle. I'll go get some ice. Another guy says, no, let me get a, a bandage, ace bandage, wrap it up. And they're kind of having a friendly discussion back and forth as to how to best assist me. But they're all, you know, but, but then a woman rushes up and she looks right at mine. She's like, this guy, I saw what happened. I am a doctor. This man's life is in danger. Call an ambulance immediately. He needs to go to the hospital or he'll die. And everyone looks at her like she's crazy. They're like, you're not a doctor. Give me a break. Let me see your credentials. And you're overreacting. But she looks right at me and she says, I'm going to tell you two things. You can't feel your legs and you can't move. And the people on the court are like, you're, you're crazy, lady. You're freaking him out. You know, give me a break. This is ridiculous overreaction. And I say, get me to a hospital right now. And they look at me and they say, how can you believe her? She's just some rando. She's a stranger. And well, I know two things they don't know. I can't feel my legs and I can't move. So I have immediate awareness of two truths that only she somehow had access to. Now, what's the rational, reasonable, justified conclusion? She's probably a doctor because no one else, no one else there had any idea what I experienced. And yet she knew so the, uh, the rational thing is that she must have some unique insight into my actual condition. So she's probably an authority. Well, that's the structure of the argument I make is that the premise one is, you know, if some religion uh, makes uniquely true claims about our fundamental human condition, the best explanation is, like the woman, it's probably a revealed religion. It's probably objectively true. That's why it has this unique insight. Well, then number two, premise two, Christianity makes two such claims, one that were radical moral failures and two, that we need an equally radical rescue. Then premise three and four, well, we are in fact radical moral failures and four, we do in fact need a radical rescue. So in the, in the, and that's basically that, what is that? That's the gospel. I mean, all, all major branches of Christianity, Catholicism, Orthodoxy, and, and Protestantism, they all agree that yes, we are in fact fallen into sin and we do in fact need a rescue, not just moral improvement. We don't need a, a better law, better government. We actually need someone to take our place and to redeem us. And so that's definitely unique to Christianity. And then I argue in the book with just appealing to history and psychological human development and uh, just our personal experience as human beings who are sinners, I show why we, we ought to be immediately aware of our sinfulness and our need for rescue. And the, the, but the takeaway from all that, again, it takes three chapters in my book, but the takeaway for us as Christians is the gospel's enough. People get intimidated and say, well, I don't have a PhD in theoretical chemistry. I don't have a master's of divinity. I don't have a degree. I don't, I don't even go to college. How can I possibly engage in apologetic arguments? How can I defend Christianity when I don't know the first thing about philosophy or history or epistemology? And the answer is, if you simply explain the gospel to people, you, you, you preach the biblical gospel, that that itself is the best argument for Christianity because it's, it, it speaks to these two immediate, deep existential truths that everybody knows, but that unfortunately we suppress in unrighteousness, but they're there. And through the Holy Spirit, 
he can bring them to the surface and people can repent and believe. And if they do, they're justified. <laughs> they're not just walking blindly into religion. They, they know what's true about themselves. And they're, they're hearing the only message that actually speaks that reality and speaks that truth to them. And therefore they're justified in believing this message. So that's the, that's the takeaway is that I'm trying to encourage Christians. You don't need to be intimidated. Just keep on preaching the gospel. And that is rationally good evidence that Christianity is true. Yeah. And, and the, the awareness of sin, or we can say the conviction of sin, that in, in your analogy, that is when you look up at that woman, you say, you're actually right. I actually can't feel my legs. Yeah. And, and so because of that, wow, you know, that's, yeah, that's all right. That's we're, we're big about gospel preaching here. And thank you for giving one more reason to continue in this stubborn, faithful practice of preaching the gospel every, every week. Yeah. Well, one another thing, other point I make too, is that, um, Sometimes, you know, depending on um, your, your theology, but the idea that, you know, the Holy Spirit regenerates us and gives us sort of, how do you know that God exists? How do you know the gospel is true? And there's this, many Reformed people would say, you know, we just have, the Holy Spirit just assures us that that God's there, that he's real, that the gospel is Christianity is true. And we we sometimes think of that as this extra rational or just non-rational awareness. Like we just, we just, we just know. Okay. Mm, okay. But I'm actually saying, what if that that process is actually rational? In other words, we are irrationally denying our sinfulness. Hmm. We are like a crazy person who just hmm. refuses to admit the obvious truth that we're sinners. And the Holy spirit just takes off, takes, takes away the craziness. And we rationally say, Oh, of course I'm a sinner. Hmm. Of course I need a rescuer. So in other words, it's not that God has to sort of you know, abruptly interrupt irrationality. It's that he has to make us, make us rational. <laughs> so wow. we're willing to admit the obvious truth that everybody can see, which is that we need to be saved from sin. So I think this is an interesting little twist on the idea of how God, or the way that God regenerates, is it actually through making us rational again and, and saving us from our crazy irrationality. Wow. All right. Okay. Um, that's what a, what a, what a way. Yeah. I mean, no longer suppressing the truth yeah, in unrighteousness, yeah. but in, in a gracious act of God, allowing that suppressed truth to what, to, to rise to the forefront of our attention, to right. see, yeah, again, not some spiritual mysticism, but to see the truth that we've been suppressing this whole time. Yeah. That's why you can present it as an argument. Like I do, I present, I mean, and I, what I point in the, in the book is that if you ask any Christian, if you ask a Christian, do you know what the Kalam cosmological argument is? Well, many of them will say no. Do you know what fine tuning is? No. Do we know what the moral argument is? No. Do you know the evidence for resurrection? No, I believe it, but I don't know what the evidence is. Okay, fine. But what's one argument all Christians necessarily know? They know they're a sinner who needs a savior. So, so you can you can you can be a Christian and not understand fine tuning but you cannot be a Christian and not think you're a sinner who needs a savior. So this is not only is it a way for Christian people to know Christianity is true. It is the way Christians implicitly already know Christianity is true. They just haven't had it articulated, you know, uh, deductively. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then maybe going back a few minutes earlier in our conversation. So like, this is sort of an, an experiential evidence mm-hmm. that, that not everyone has experienced yet, but those of us who have, even that is, it's a, it's a reality that corresponds to what the Bible has been telling us. Yeah, I, I actually put it another way. I think we, we all do, because we're human beings with in God's image, we all do experience it. 
I mean, the feelings of guilt and sin okay. yeah. and right and wrong are universal. They are universal, but but we naturally suppress it. We, we we have experiences and we push them down and shut our minds to them and deny they happened. But you know, you ask anyone honestly, one on one, you know, quietly, even the most hardened atheist will say there have been times in my life when like I really messed up and I felt really bad. Why? Because we're we're human. We're not robots. We have there is a moral realm that we experience, and again, we we deny that, we suppress it, but it's there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm looking at the clock, and I have time for for one more question connected with this. You you believe, and and I I'm I'm with you, but you believe that the study of apologetics can actually like lead lead to worship, and I think this kind of edges up against even some of the the previous stuff that we've been speaking about here. But can you maybe ex- explicitly? Uh, talk to us about like how can apologetics lead to worship? I mean, any everything should lead to worship, right? Mm. The worship just means mm. seeing God's ultimate worth in everything. And since He made everything, you'd better be able to find it, find it in everything. <laughs> but apologetics, when you're when you're talking about um, things like you know, oh, God created the universe, sure, and, and explaining how you can know that. But let's say you know, that could be a purely intellectual argument. But just think for a second. What you're saying, you're saying that God created this universe, which is just you know what, unfathomably big, and yet He still knows every hair on your head. Yeah, just that should not be merely like oh, interesting factoid, like a ten to the ten to <laughs> what power number of stars in the universe. Yeah. It should be that is a God worthy of my complete obedience, who deserves that. So every one of these arguments. Of course, you can sequester them and, and, and compartmentalize them and, and be purely intellectual about them, but that's not healthy. You ought to take those arguments and then realize, if I believe this and I do, what does that mean for my devotional life? What does that mean for how I, all, all kinds of implications? So I think, and all of that is ultimately a worship because you're appreciating God's worth and then letting that affect you. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're you're helping me worship a little bit, even even right now by reminding and highlighting these these truths about the God who is real and the world that we exist in right now. Well, yeah, Dr. Shenby, so your book "Why Believe: A Reasoned Approach to Christianity" is available now, and there'll be a, a link in the show notes uh, for it. Any any tiny brief little blurb for it? I think I think people have already <laughs> grasped uh, who you are, what you're about, and what you've written about. Uh, why should somebody buy? multiple copies of this book. <laughs> well, I do think it's, it's, it's very, it's comprehensive. Like it'll take, um, it'll, it, it's accessible to, I would say motivated high school students, but I actually wrote a book intentionally that college Christian college students could give to their professors and okay. not feel embarrassed. I, I'm not, and there, there are books that I love out there that I think are very helpful and good, but they're written to a broad audience. And, and I think, you know, I, I, to, not to pick on him, but Jay Warner Wallace's book, Cold Case Christianity, I, I liked the book, but it has illustrations, like cartoons in it. And I'm, and I think the book's good, but if mm-hmm. I handed that to like uh, my, you know, my Nobel laureate professor, <laughs> they're going to just, there are pictures in here. <laughs> so I wanted to write a book that like had some academic heft to it, even though it is accessible, there are illustrations, yeah. there are jokes, and yet it, you read it like it reads more like something you'd find at the Atlantic <laughs> than something you'd find like, you know, uh, like at an airport, you know, paperback stand. Um, that's one thing. And then the other thing, again, it's it's definitely comprehensive. And all of the arguments in the book are not for mere theism. 
They are aimed at Christianity. So I'm not trying to make you believe in just a generic God. I want you to, to, to trust in Jesus. So again, it's a big, I think a good book for giving to motivated high school students, college students, and anyone who sort of has that desire to have a really sophisticated book that I engage a lot with prominent atheist authors like Dawkins, Harris, Hitchens, Dennett, but also um, scholars like Bart Ehrman. And so yeah, just, uh, yeah, that, that, that's what it's written for. And I, but I do hope, I, ideally, it's always about bringing people to Christ. And uh, and I do it, they've been a very clear gospel explanation and call people to repent and believe. So yeah, if you, it sounds good for you, then uh, pick up a copy. Pick up two copies, one for you and then one for your professor. <laughs> all right. Well, to the listeners to this show, I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Thanks, Neil. Great. Thanks, Mike. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Shenvi. Really enjoyed that conversation. And you listened all the way to the end. So I'm going to assume that you did as well. I hope that you are subscribed either on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever. And that next week on Tuesday morning, you're able to listen to our next episode. This is a presentation from John Wong, and he speaks about the importance of mentorship, mentorship in general, but preaching mentorships specifically. All of us want to grow and improve. All of us can benefit from learning from an older and more experienced preacher. And then also, there are younger and less experienced preachers around us. And perhaps we're even able to help and assist them. So I hope that next week, you, because you subscribed, you'll get the next episode automatically delivered to your YouTube account, your Spotify, your Apple Podcasts, Overcast. Stitcher, whatever, because it's another great episode. All right. I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective help you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word.